Hi, I'm Justin Rosso, and welcome to this episode of the Next Step Podcast, where we help you take a next step. Today, our special guest is Reverend Keith Haney. He's an author, the host of the Becoming Bridge Builders podcast, and he works as an assistant to the president of Iowa District West in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today, Keith will be joining me to talk about the chapter In the Bleak Midwinter from the resource Light in the Darkness, a hymn journal for Advent and Christmas from Next Step Press. After a brief introduction and an opening prayer, you'll hear Keith read from Micah 6 and Jeremiah 9. Those Bible verses are printed on page 57 of the hymn journal. And as a part of the discussion that follows, I'll read the devotion, What Shall I Give Him, on page 58. Then we get a chance to hear Brooke and Brendan as they provide us with their rendition of In the Bleak Midwinter. You can see Micah 6, verse 8, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly, on protest signs or social media pages. And the Faith Experiment on pages 60 and 61 gives us a chance to talk to Keith about his work addressing race and racism. Well, we've got snow back on the ground here in Michigan. Actually, uh, we've got grumple more than snow. I learned the word grapple for the first time just a couple years ago. It's that strange wintry mix that's not quite hail, but not quite snow. It looks almost like little pellets of styrofoam. And since I learned that word a couple years ago, it seems like we get more grapple in Michigan than anything else. But whatever you are today, whatever the weather is doing for you, whatever strange new word you've learned and put into practice, I'm glad you're here as we look for a small next step to take together as we follow Jesus into this Advent and Christmas season. Thanks for joining us on the Next Step Podcast. Keith Haney joins us today on the Next Step Podcast. Welcome, Keith. Good to be here. How you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, where in the world are you today? I am actually in my office in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Fort Dodge, how is the weather in Fort Dodge, Iowa today? The weather in Fort Dodge is lovely for this time of year in Iowa. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me more. What does lovely for this time of year mean? It's in the 40s, I think. So, oh. typically it could be Iowa has a tendency to be cold and windy in the winter and boiling hot in the summer. So, you know, there you go. We have both, ex- both, worlds. both extremes. Yeah. Well, I so appreciate you joining us today. Uh, allow me to start us with prayer before we begin. Uh, come, Holy Spirit, and and open our hearts and minds. You who inspired the, these words to be written by the prophet Micah and Jeremiah, will you? We also inspire our hearts to hear these words and to live them out and to trust what you have for it, for us in these words today. Come, Holy Spirit, and be with us. Amen. So, our first reading is from Micah chapter six, verses six through eight. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Jeremiah 9, 24, let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these things I delight. Thanks, Keith. Those are really powerful words. Uh, as as we walk through them, is there anything that jumped out at you this this time through? You know, in this time where, where the word justice just keeps being thrown about, it is interesting mm. to me that we have so lost the biblical understanding of what justice is. And as I was studying this text this day, it, it kind of is helpful to kind of frame where this passage is coming with and what, what Mike is dealing with. You have people who are looking to find a way to please God by offering their firstborn children to God, hopefully to atone Mm. for their sins. You have Mm. neighboring groups, Amorites, who sacrifice their children to their God, Moloch. And so you have have Micah going, that's not what God's looking for from you. you. You are offering things to God to appease your guilty conscience. 
that God isn't asking for. And and where is that to, uh, for us today? We do the same thing. We may not sacrifice our children, but we sacrifice mm. our careers, our mm. uh, our money, whatever it is. God, just please give me mercy, you know. And now we're sacrificing even our freedoms. I think today because we're trying to appease not God but other people. So we'll offer up our freedoms. We'll offer up our uh, our identity. Even I hear people saying, you know, hey, I, I will admit that I am this if you will just give me give me some give me a pass. So hmm. it may not be what we think, but you you still see the same mindset. I'll give it whatever you want just to ease my conscience. Hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. I I was struck also by especially the verse, shall I offer my firstborn for the for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I mean, you can hear you can hear from the human perspective what's misguided about that, that ache for some kind of uh restitution, restoration. What do I gotta do here? And then the irony that this is exactly what God the Father does. He gives up his firstborn for us. That's right. a kind of a powerful switch, Think something he would never, God would never expect of us. God does for us instead. Uh, tell me more about that biblical idea of justice. That, that intrigues me. What were, you, what were you talking about with that? Well, I was looking it up, and it, it, it crossed my mind. There was, was so many things to talk about the fact that, you know, this verse is on the Library of Congress in Washington. Um, yeah. It's been used in all kinds of protests. But I, but I ran across the simplest explanation of what this verse is. And, you know, the rabbis used this verse for centuries to kind of, in one line, summarize the whole of what the law is. But but it talked about the fact that what justice is, it's not just us seeking justice for someone else, but it means to walk justly ourselves. And I think mm-hmm. we, we, we love to tell people how they should behave, how they should live their life. But this verse says, no, but you're also supposed to do the just thing. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to do the right thing. It's not just other people. It's not just seeking it for the world. And I think that's what's missing in our conversation today. I was talking to my wife about this. We have lost the ability to self-reflect mm. <laughs> in society. It's it's easy to find someone's mistake from 10 years ago on social media and yeah. right away criticize them and, and de- deplatform them and, and condemn them. But we don't look at our own sin from just the day before or even an hour before. And so we have lost the ability to forgive and to realize that we are human and we struggle with being just. I mean, just that idea of being just. If, imagine if our if our conversation changed from punishment to justice. Hmm. And it began with us. How do I do the just thing? Yeah, I wonder if that's uh, that lack of, of an ability to self-reflect is related to, uh, we've zoomed in on Micah 6, 8 now, but the, the last of those three, to walk humbly with your God, that that humility, that dependence on God's justice and God's mercy, uh, we, if we lack the hum- that humility to say, I'm the first one under judgment, then that impedes our ability to live out the justice and the mercy that's, first of all, God's. And second of all, given to us also to live out uh, the 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 Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. It's sometimes taken as like the first commentary on on the Old Testament text. In this particular place, instead of humbly, it reads ready or prepared, so that you walk in a prepared in a way that's ready to do justice and mercy. And I wonder if that's a part of the humility too. Right. And, and, and the idea of humility, we also mistake what that is. You know, humility is not comparing ourselves to others. It's mm. comparing ourselves to God. And if we look at ourselves compared to a holy, blameless God, the only posture we have is humility. Mm. Because we realize, as Isaiah did in the temple, when, he con- when God confronted him, he's like, yeah. he fell on his knees and like, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. I-, I am not worthy, Lord, to even serve you and definitely not to be in your presence. If we reclaimed that sense of humility in our lives, we would be a lot less judgmental about the sins of other people. Uh, and I think that's that's been missing, the humility of understanding I'm not comparing myself to uh, other people to my standards of mm. what I think is right, but I'm comparing them to God's standards and myself to God's standards. And I don't have the right to judge anybody when I compare myself to God's standards versus my own. 
Because my own, you know, I'm like, well, I'm not as bad as a guy down the street. Right, right. You know, but. Yeah, that's not very humble, though. Which <laughs> isn't very humble, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's good. I, I like to think of that humility also as a kind of dependence. So as you say, uh, before a holy God, I'm, I am I know I'm a sinner. And then taking it that a step further, that humility is a dependence on God because because I've got nothing to bring. This is kind of the, a poor in spirit, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt kind of concept for me, that dependence exactly. on Jesus is wrapped into that humility. I, I like how this Jeremiah 9 passage, the reason it's there is because it actually says that what God expects of us is also what gives God delight and is a part of God's character. This justice and mercy uh, is a part of who God identifies as, you know, this is, this is what I am, just and merciful. Uh, just kind of to finish out our, our conversation on, on this part of the text, the justice there to act justly. That's the Hebrew word mishpat for you Hebrew scholars out there. Right. And it, it means, uh, it can mean a verdict. It can mean to do justice, but it has to do with setting something to rights, uh, which also actually often entails a sense of mercy as well. So something's broken, something's not right, and you set it to right, not in kind of a, you know, we think of justice as being blind. And I almost think of this as the opposite of that. This isn't covering up your eyes and doing the, the just thing. This is having your eyes wide open to everyone involved and still setting things to right. Uh, and then the mercy word is, boy, is that a biblically loaded word or what? It's it's the Hebrew word, chesed, uh, gesundheit. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it, it's the term for covenant faithfulness or, or loving mercy. It's a really gospel, gospel-based word. So this covenant faithfulness of God, now you're supposed to depend on that and love that kind of... Uh, that kind of faithfulness, that mercy, that uh, that grace. So, and anything in there from that that helps us understand our conversation so far. Well, I, going back to where you you talked about just a little bit the the Jeremiah passage. Hmm. Th- those three words are powerful. God exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness. I think you know. All talk about justice being not blind. When we ep- implement justice without kindness without compassion, it's not justice. Hmm. It's, it's revenge. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's retribution. It's it, it takes away the, the the mercy that justice is supposed to contain in it. And then justice should lead to righteousness, which is that idea of of restorative justice. So hmm. we we have kind of missed that justice is not designed just to punish. It's designed to have mercy and restoration. And to me, that's what Jeremiah is also pointing out about what justice is. And I don't always see that in society. Yeah. It's not about mercy and restoring people. That's what justice was designed to do, especially what God does. God doesn't just punish you because he enjoys it. Yeah. He punishes you because he wants to bring you back in alignment with his will and with his His goals for you as a, as a believer walking in the light. And so that also is missing, I think, in our conversation about justice. Yeah, boy, it's it's hard to deal with all of this kind of between Jesus' first coming and, and looking forward to his second coming because we, we always will get this wrong. And, and yet we serve a God who is fundamentally about setting things to right. And, and, and that ultimate setting things to rights won't happen until Jesus comes again. And yet already now we're called to be a part of that kind of God-like behavior of setting things to right, which includes both but with that justice and mercy together. I, I like how you said that. Uh, hey, before we get too much further down down that path, I, I do want to talk to you some more about that. But if we turn the page, there's there's a devotion there on page 58. Uh, I'd like to listen to the hymn from Brooke and Brendan. Before we do that, let me read the devotion called, What Shall I Give Him? Gift giving can be a headache. How are you supposed to shop for people who already have everything they need? What do you give that you haven't given twice already? Is regifting acceptable? What did they give me last year? Giving Christmas gifts can end up being about reciprocity. Have you ever felt bad for giving a $10 gift when you received a $50 gift instead? Have you ever felt guilty opening a Christmas card from someone you hadn't sent one to? You added them to your list for next year though, right? It's amazing. Even giving gifts can turn into stress and anxiety and guilt and competition and envy. Add all of that together and multiply by a factor of the divine, and you get the question of the psalmist and the hymn writer. 
What do you get God for Christmas? What birthday present is enough for Jesus? What shall I give him, poor as I am? How do I hold up my end of the bargain? If you're stuck in a mindset of reciprocity, if your gift giving is riddled with judgment and shame, you can miss the point of all gifts. Giving Christmas presents is about relationship. The best gifts show you are known as well as loved. The price tag has very little to do with it. When God gave the firstborn son for the sin of your soul, the cost was immeasurable, but the gift is still about relationship. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you so much that the Father gives you Jesus. You can't compete with that gift. So how do you respond? With relationship. As you get to know the Lord better and better, you live out the things that bring God delight. You act justly. That is, you live in alignment with God's rescuing mercy that sets the world to rights. You love mercy. That is, you rely on and live out God's covenant faithfulness. And you walk humbly with your God. You trust in the justice and mercy that gave you Jesus. Those gifts say to the Father, I know you. I love you. I want to be like you when I grow up. That's the best gift a father can receive.
That was In the Bleak Midwinter from Brooke and Brendan, played off of their Christmas album. Uh, Keith, as as we turn the page to the faith experiment, the the Micah six prayer. Uh, not only do we have mutual friends, but you've uh, you've written some resources. You've got a, a podcast that I think helps us kind of un- untangle some of this today. So, would you talk to me a little bit about this research that you wrote? Uh, was published by Concordia Publishing House called "One Nation Under God." Well, what is that resource? What's it for? And and how did it come about? So it came about after the. Michael Brown incident in Ferguson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Our church body was trying to figure out how do we respond to the racial tension that's growing in our nation. And I I started writing a blog right about that same time. And I realized as I looked around the, uh, the, the, the scene in the media that even the pastors they brought on to talk about race were really not dealing with the real issues. It, it was not very hopeful and the talks to me seem very divisive. So I said, well, I, I think there needs to be at least a voice out there that points people toward the gospel and points people toward what do we do about this? Hmm. And so um, CPH had run across some of my blog stuff and said, hey, would you come alongside and kind of be like a ride-along guy as we write this Bible study? <laughs> and I and I kind of responded, well, maybe we don't need another Bible study raised by a white guy. Maybe I should write it because I have a different experience than you do. And so out of that birthed this whole Bible study. And the goal at that in 2017, the reality is that the Ferguson event was really kind of limited to a couple cities. It was hmm. uh it, it was basically Missouri and I mean St. Louis and it was it got, something kind of happened in Baltimore and a couple of things in Dallas, but then it kind of died down. Uh-huh. This Bible study really started taking off in churches and being used a lot after the George Floyd thing happened, where everybody's kind of locked down and the racial issues and tensions in our country really accelerated. That's when people started calling me saying, hey, do we have anything we can talk about race in our congregations in a way that's going to be challenging, but still very hopeful? And that's when it's, so lately it's really been taken off because it was timely for the times. So that dynamic of, of challenging and yet hopeful, that, that seems important to you in this context. It is because we have to challenge, and I and I the thing about the study is it challenges both both sides of the coin, because mm-hmm. it's not just what you're hearing in society today is, well, if white people just were not racist, we could be better. <laughs> and, and my experience was because I served a congregation um, where it was it was the, my black members who were racist or dealing with racism, racist hearts, and there was really the mindset that. Well, black people can't have race issues because we're the we're the minority class. We mm. we're the ones who are always the victims. And I'm like, no, because it's not a it's not a color thing. It's not even a power dynamics thing. It's a heart issue. And so, the Bible study starts out just helping us first of all start with who is our who are we, and, and if we don't start with who our what our identity is, then everything else we talk about race is going to be mixed up. So we go back to who are we, and we are we find our identity in Christ and who Christ has made us to be. If we don't start there, we don't see people as fallen sinners in need of God's grace, then we see each other as based, as Paul would say, just on our outward external features. And it's not that's not how God sees us. God says, I look beyond the externals and I look at the heart. And we need to see people and see that they have a heart first, and they were created by a creator who uniquely says, as, as Ephesians says, you are a, a, a beautiful masterpiece. And each of us was uniquely designed by God. Mm-hmm. And we have to embrace the beauty of what God designed and not criticize or judge what God designed. You know, Keith, it strikes me that if a, if a white pastor were to say, uh, well, black people can be racist too. That that would come off uh, as as really deflecting the the issue. But to hear an African African American man saying, "Oh wait, man, black people can be can be racist too," that kind of raises that's a different dynamic. H- how has that Bible study been received in different kinds of communities that that you're familiar with? What I've what I've heard from people is that it's been a blessing because I pull back the shade of a lot of things that people have suspected. People have thought, but I always point them to the hope. Like the chapter two, I think is one of my favorite because in chapter two, I talk about who's the real enemy in this whole race thing. And the real enemy is not the person across from you who's different from you with different melatonin. Yeah, It, it is Satan and Satan is in the background 
giving us half-truths about each other. And and we really break down and said, this is racism is a spiritual issue and a spiritual warfare that we're in. And we have to keep our attention on the spiritual aspects of racism and not get caught up in the externals that the world would have us get caught up in. Uh, and I think that's, that's one of the breakthrough chapters for a lot of people uh, is pointing out who are we really fighting against? We're not fighting against people who are different from us. Uh, we're fighting against Satan, who is dividing us, and he loves the division. Yeah, you know that gets back to that walking humbly piece. You know, if if it if I have to protect myself from other people, that's uh, first of all not a very humble stance, but that also means uh, I I'm naturally going to divide that protectionism, and to be humble enough to say it's a spiritual issue, and that means my heart is also involved, uh, and to be self reflective on it. That's that's a big step, but boy, that seems so important to me in this context. Right. Tell me more about this, the, the Becoming Bridge Builders podcast that, that you host. Why are you doing it? What do you do on that podcast? So on the podcast, I want to keep the Bible study relevant. And also because people can receive information on very different mediums. So I have a blog. Some people read the blog and last up on the blog is, is kind of geared toward that, but other things as well. But the podcast was for me to bring on guests who can address a certain aspect in the racial divides in America. And again, with the whole goal of give the audience action items, things they can do, but also be hopeful. Let's address what the issues are, but let's identify the issues. Let's talk about solutions and give people action items. So that's kind of the purpose of the blog, of of the podcast is to do that. And so I I brought a guest on and we talked about um, his experience being the first black person living in Dearborn, Michigan. If you know anything about Dearborn, Michigan, uh, before it became a, a highly Arab population, it was mostly just white. And, and the Dearborn rumor is, is that it was named Dearborn because it was for the people who were dearly born. Uh, mm. And so um, he said he faced all kinds of racism because he was adopted by a Lutheran pastor and his wife, and he was an African-American kid. And he said it just it was just hard. They had to move up because he just he just they had a cross burning in their front yard. Oh, I mean, it was just that kind of hatred and stuff. And we talked about how, as an African American who's trying to bring about healing in our nation, it, it's exhausting, really, for us because we, people who feel safe come to you all the time, and they're always asking questions about well, how do you feel about BLM? How should I address this? How can I talk about that? Yeah. And you become this this resource, and it's it's an important conversation. But a lot of times, people don't really want to change. It's kind of like that we talked about earlier. They just want someone to ease their guilty conscience. And so it's like, tell me what I have to do to feel better about myself. Tell me I'm not a racist. I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't know if you are or not. I was like, I can't, can't wait to decide that for you. Yeah. Because so here's a so example. I, I did a presentation in Lincoln and it was very fascinating because I was talking about critical race theory with the, trying to explain to the congregation where it's like complicated. That's a whole nother topic. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. And, and one of the guys got very upset with me and he said to me, I am not a racist and I don't appreciate being called one. And I'm like, I didn't call you a racist. And then he went on to explain to me how he wasn't a racist. He's like, when I hire people, I only ask them two questions. Am I a slave owner if they're black? And I ask them if they're a slave. And, and if they answer no to both of us, like, see, we're going to get along just fine. I'm like, see, that's probably not the way place I would start this conversation. <laughs> but he had a genuine desire, like the like we talked about earlier, to find, to sacrifice something to make himself feel better. Because the guilt of what he's been hearing in the news and the media was so great on him. It's like, just ease my pain. That's the justify yourself rather than the do justice move, right? Right. Man, it's such a complicated topic. And uh, you you said we get tired of just dealing with it. And uh, I, I think... You know, I feel like I'm in a little bit of a white bubble where I live. And so I have the, I kind of have the luxury of being tired of hearing about it or dealing with it or not, you know, just waiting <laughs> right. to celebrate Christmas without having to think about it. But this text from Micah really 
puts back kind of on the front burner for me this idea of how do we deal with all kinds of race, race relationships in our country, in our personal lives? How do I do justice on, on, a, on a personal kind of level? Do you have any other ideas about what that looks like as we walk in, into Christmas? I think it goes back to the explanation from Jeremiah, where he says very clearly, we need to we look at justice from a, a kindness perspective. Hmm. Think about the people that that need justice and why they need justice, because somehow their life has gone astray, and and justice is designed to be a course correction in people's life, and and the course correction is designed with the end goal in mind of. How do I now walk in the rightness of God? And so if we look at justice from the perspective of how do we help co- do course corrections in people? And that's what Christmas was all about. It was, it was Christ coming down as a, as a rest, a savior for us, it says, because the world need a course correction. Hmm. And the only way to do that is to go back to that first part. I have to offer my firstborn for the transgressions of a world that needs a course correction. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a kindness of God realizing that the world needed justice so they could be on the right track. And it's by faith that we have access to that gift of the firstborn who came for our transgressions. And we have to get back to helping people realize that your life needs to be adjusted from time to time. And what the voices you need to hear are from the church saying, here's how we, uh, we course correct our life. And we do it with loving kindness so that we get to the justice part, so that we get to the life after, you know, the right, the right path part with, with, our res- with our faith and resurrection. So, Yeah, it strikes me that that, that fundamental dependence on, on God's mercy is what enables us to be open to God and say, where, where does my life need correcting? Where do I need, where do you need to set things to rights in my, in my life too? I mean, I'm, I'm constantly aware that this is all done in light of Jesus' first coming and Jesus' promised second coming. So there's a sense in which uh, until the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, we're not going to get this world exactly right. Uh, and we are also called to live out that kind of justice and mercy in our own lives. So uh, being open, praying with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know me, and, and see if there's any way that grieves your heart that's in me. Will you please fix that? That openness to God has got to be grounded in that confidence in God's mercy. Uh, I, I Not to hide my sin, not to hide my my own kind of natural proclivities or protectionism or self-justification, but to open that self-justification up to God, that's a that's a step that only happens under the umbrella of grace. Right, because our natural tendency is, I don't want to deal with my sin, so I'll deal with yours. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot easier that way. <laughs> and and if, you, if you really take a look back at what's happening in our society, is there are a lot of people who realize that they have a lot of issues. Yeah. And so what's, what's the world doing? The world is picking up other people's sins. It's like the idea of, let me pick out the speck in your eye so yeah. I don't see the plank in my own eye. I mean, that's what I see happening in the world. There's a lot of speck picking going on yeah. in society because it's like, I don't want to deal with my own plank. I'd rather yeah. deal with you. And so we we always go toward, let's go cancel this person because I see the speck in their eye. I see the speck in that person's eye. And so if I keep going after all those people, then I can never have to deal with my own issues. But at some point, the mirror comes and we see that plank in our eye and we realize when there's no one left to cancel that I, it's just me in a room alone with the almighty going, I never dealt with my own sin yeah. and now my own sin is in front of me and I have to deal with it. Man, I guess that's an invitation to always go back to that, to that mercy again and again. I, it's, uh, I was, I was just thinking as you're talking, imagining people with planks walking around, you know, picking, <laughs> spag- it, 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 that's, I think that's, that's, I think that's how we imagine doing justice. When you talk about doing justice to other people, like whack, 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 I'm going to do some justice. And I think the text is inviting us to act justly, to, to live in alignment with this God who sets the world to rights, which starts with me. That's the walk humbly part. So yep. a very different picture. 
Well, hey, I, I love how you uh, are focused on taking a concrete, having having a concrete action step as a part of your podcast. So as we're talking about this kind of Advent Christmas time, the getting ready for Christmas, but also this this kind of sensitive topic of of race relations and tensions in America, is there a, a, a concrete next step you can invite our listeners to take this Christmas season? I always tell people, like you said, it was in your in your opening devotion. It's like, it's about relationships. Mm. If you want to break down the walls of racism and tension in our country, you need to form authentic, open relationships. And not for this pur- purpose of converting them particularly, but it's just to gain better understanding. Mm. I think so many people don't have someone who's different from themselves that they can really talk to and understand and see that really they bleed the same way I bleed. Mm. They care about the same things I care about. They love their families. They love, they're looking for success in whatever the world is sometimes is, but they want to be happy. And I think if we, if we understood that people are not that different and it's not our melatonin level that makes us different, it's the fact that we all are the same. We all are humans and we're always trying to figure out this world thing and we're trying to figure it out from different perspectives. But if we have someone to understand the struggle, to listen to our struggle, I think we break down those walls. So to me, it's about relationships. Uh, thank, thanks for that. I think that's a great invitation to invest and commit in a relationship with someone who doesn't have your background or your upbringing or your skin color. Help me think through just a little bit. How do you protect yourself from, uh, I don't know, I, at different points in my life, I have lived in much more racially diverse environments than I currently happen to be living kind of right at the moment. And uh, I, I can imagine there's that kind of uh, dynamic where there's one Indian woman in your small group. And so everybody rushes to, or there's that kind of the, <laughs> the one black man at work. And so everybody try, you know, like, so now I got to kind of find somebody different and, and you don't know that many people in your, how, how do you protect yourself from being the kind of a, you know, the jerk that, I, I don't know, how do you not be a jerk when you go about this? <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty interesting because for me, what I always try to do is I tell people, we need to figure out. So, for our congregation, we were we were pretty much a a black congregation in Milwaukee, and we didn't have much contact. So, what we did was we decided to do a joint Bible study with a a white congregation in West Bend, and so we would get together. Our men would go down there one Saturday. Their men would come to our place one Saturday, and we formed these authentic friendships by having it took it was a one hour drive it wasn't my mm. mind you, it wasn't a simple process to do mm. but it was worth the effort to go out and say who can i connect with who's different from myself so that we can grow together in our faith and instead of me having a bible study of four guys and them having a bible study of 15 guys we now had 20 guys together 25 guys together who were now studying God's word together, who were breaking bread together, who were laughing together, who were crying together, who were praying together. We were gathered around God's word together and we formed a lasting bond that lasted over 10 years. Hmm. But it it took effort. I mean, the thing about it is, if it's really important to us to, to have those authentic friendships with people who are different from ourselves, it will require sacrifice. It will require maybe having to drive a little bit of distance or go out of our way to make this happen. But it's also going to require vulnerability and commitment. Hmm. And so if we really are committed to being, because I, I, I thought about in my Bible study saying, ending it with, we need to call for a day of reconciliation. And I'm like, well, that's not, we're not going to do that. We're not ready for that as a country. <laughs> then I thought about, you know, maybe I should, I should tell them to go form a committee. Well, you know how church committees work. <laughs> And, and, and so I said, the best thing to do is to have everybody go out and connect with somebody different from themselves. Imagine if every Christian made it their responsibility to go out into the world and to be Christ in the world. We could, we could deal with the issues because people would say, well, the person you're describing, I know someone who's not like that. And, and they're a person of color or they're white. That They're not racist. I have friends who are not. But most people don't have a point of reference. So all you see is the people on television like, wow, there you go. Another picture of a person getting arrested, another person, mm. of a, you know, a white supremacist guy. So I guess they're all like that. So mm. 
the way you break down those stereotypes is to connect with people in authentic, genuine ways, one-on-one. Every Christian take the responsibility to say, I can do that. I can make a difference. I can go be friends to someone who I've not, I'm not known, who's not like me. And I can prove to them that what they heard, what they see is not true. Thanks. I really appreciate that very much. Um, at Next Step Press, we like to say we follow Jesus better when we follow him together. And I heard that in two different ways in what you just said. The first was that when you went to build those kinds of relationships across some of these boundaries, you didn't do it just by yourself or you didn't ask the, the guys in your men's group to just individually find someone that's not like them, but you you did it together. You had these people on your rope as you went and crossed those boundaries you did it with other people and that kind of made it perhaps safer It made it um, it's easier to, to take that kind of step when you're taking that step with somebody. Right. And the other way I saw it was, was how intentional you were about saying, I need to connect with someone who's not like me so that I can follow Jesus better. Right. So somehow it's important for my own faith to find someone that didn't grow up. At, well, for me, kind of Midwestern white Lutheran, uh, because that perspective will add to my faith, deepen my faith, help me see Jesus differently and better. So that kind of, uh, we follow Jesus better when we follow him together and, and add the tagline with someone who doesn't look or think or believe quite like us, uh, that, that might be an interesting way to think about that saying. Right, because I, I, I was always taught as in leadership, I did it first, and then I talked to someone else and did it with them. So yeah. Yeah, that's it. Because <laughs> I can't tell you, go do something I've never done before. So right. I'm like, no, I did it first. I made connection with the pastor of that congregation in West West Bend. We had a relationship. I said, hey, what if we did this as a group? So I built that first. I made that bridge first. And then I brought others along with me. So you have to do it first. And then you can bring people along with you to do it too. What's the most influential kind of across racial boundary relationship that, that you've had in your life, Keith? Well, there's, there's been a couple, I think the one that, and it's, and it's not, it's not going to be the one that that's the most obvious because hmm. I had to, I had to bridge a gap between myself and an African immigrant pastor hmm. because there's a, there's a great tension in the African immigrant community and the black community. So I ended up bringing a pastor on staff who was from Africa and mentored him as he learned how to pastor in our in our church body. But that came with a lot of tension. My members weren't particularly happy. There were some there was some serious pushback because they were different. And you would think, well, that what a wonderful opportunity. <laughs> and so that was hard. It really was. And so now it's it's taught me because now I'm working here in Iowa with several different pastors who are from Africa. And, and I learned some important lessons from that just about how the culture is different and, and the approach to life is different. And so you have to be able to be what I call people, you have to be a, a cultural detective because there are certain things that each culture does that's different. A, a quick example for you. So I was working with a congregation in a Hispanic neighborhood and they decided to have a Cinco de Mayo service. Now this was a Lutheran congregation. <laughs> um, and, and so if you could guess what they serve for the meal, um, people say, well, they obviously serve like tacos or enchiladas. I'm like, no, they're a Lutheran congregation. They serve brats and hot dogs and German potato salad. That's great. And I'm like, because they didn't understand the need to appreciate the culture. And so I always give this example. When when we as a family have a, a Christmas or a holiday celebration, we ask the people coming, especially my, my kids who are now bringing home their, and those people that are special to them, who I'm supposed to love. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, I, and I go out of my way to kind of figure out how do I make them feel welcome? I could tell them, well, this is our, this is our celebration. I am the head of the household. This is how we do Christmas and Thanksgiving. But what I do is I let every person who comes to the meal bring their favorite dish or make their favorite dish. Now, it means the kitchen's a huge disaster, but it, it personalizes that meal because everybody brings something to the table that's from their culture or their favorite. So it's it's a meal that never stays the same, Yeah. but it's, in, it's inclusive versus if you really want to be part of my life, you must be like me. You must think like me. You must have my same political views. It is 
listening to people, understanding their point of view, and appreciating the culture they come from. And, and that's what you would want if you're going somewhere new and you're the minority. You'd want people to, to understand and appreciate you do bring something to the table. We have to have that same attitude meeting people from a different culture and background, too. What they bring to the table is important and it should be welcome. And how do I include that in my celebration, in my life, in my world? You said one of the important relationships for you was with the African immigrant pastor, but but you said there were two. What was the other one? Well, the other one was I, I have a, co- a few friends who are Asian American. Um, and I always assumed that Asian Americans didn't have any racism because to me, I'm like, why would they be racist against you? You, 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 you kind of look a lot like each other. And I just found out that there were some, that, that those, some of those people faced some of the most despicable comments. I had one friend um, say that somebody said, if you weren't raised by a white family, you'd still be eating dog because he was from Korea. And I'm like, what, what in people's mindset can make, can make you that cruel? And and so it, it changed my understanding that it's not just a black and white issue. It's an Asian issue. It's a Hispanic issue. There, it's, it's a white issue. I, like To me, the George Floyd thing put this entire country in a state of trauma. Mm. And all of us are dealing with our trauma from dealing with that situation and the lockdowns. And what I see happening in our country now is your trauma is hitting against my trauma and neither of us know how to deal with it. Mm. And so there's a, there's a lot of pain there. And so I, I have had to learn as I work across cultural lines that to leave your country and to come here is a trauma. And you're mm. dealing with a new culture, a new situation, a new way of doing life and ministry and everything else. And so I've had to learn to be patient with people and, and to give them the space and to allow them to do things their way and not expect them to fit into my box, my time frame. And it's more about being patient with people and learning how they think and how they operate versus me saying, I need this by this time. I need you to do it yeah. this way. It's, it's learning to be patient and, and to appreciate, okay, if I go to an African immigrant service, it's not going to be an hour. It, it's going to be an entire day event. So I need to just yeah. kind of plan. I'm not going to get home until dark. <laughs> and it won't start on time probably. Yeah, right, right, right. Got some experience with that too. Uh, so <laughs> listening, being open to what they bring to the table, being patient with them, all that sounds a lot like acting justly and, and loving mercy and walking, walking humbly God. through God. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Keith, it's been a real joy uh, to, to talk with you about this. Would, would you end us with prayer, please? It would be my pleasure. Dear Father, we give you thanks, Lord, that you have blessed us richly, each of us, with unique gifts, talents, and abilities, a unique perspective on life, on family, on the world. But you called us together under one banner, the cross, redeemed by one Savior. We share one common faith, one common baptism. Lord, help us to also be able to share one common love and appreciation for one another, because you have given us the opportunity to learn to appreciate the richness of your creation. May this Christmas season remind us again of the love that you had for us by sending your son, your firstborn, as a ransom for all of us to help us correct the course of our lives and to walk justly with you and humbly with you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. That was Pastor Keith Haney, the host of the Becoming Bridge Builders podcast. I'll make sure to link to Keith's favorite episode of his podcast, as well as to their homepage in the description of this episode. Keith was also the author of the One Nation Under God Bible Study resource published by Concordia Publishing House. I'll link you to that resource as well. I didn't realize Keith wrote that Bible study first as a response to the Ferguson unrest, I'll share a link to an article that I wrote after my experience just outside of Ferguson less than a year after that event. You can find the prayer experiment, the Praying Micah 6-8, on the Next Step Community blog page, along with a further description of some of those Hebrew words. I'll put that link in the description as well. And of course, an invitation to join our Facebook social learning group for this Advent Hymn Journal. Like always, this episode of the Next Step podcast was made possible in part by the generous support of Next Step patrons. 
like to extend a special thanks to Eden, who's a Next Step patron. She just converted her regular monthly gift into an annual gift. So there's lots of options for you to support the mission and ministry of Next Step Press, and we invite you to check that out. Well, thanks for spending another hour with us here at the Next Step Podcast. I learned a lot as I talked to Keith, and I'd invite you to take what he said to heart. Perhaps there's someone you're inviting into your space, into your house, into your family celebrations this year, and perhaps there's a way for you to not only uh, show them how your family celebrates Christmas, but there's a way to invite them to show you how their family of origin celebrates Christmas as well. Uh, I really appreciate what Keith said, that we follow Jesus better when we follow him together, especially with someone who doesn't share our cultural upbringing or background. So look for someone in your life who's not like you that can help point you to Jesus. Wherever you are and wherever's going on in your life, remember that promise that Jesus is with you in the midst even of this bleak midwinter. Thanks for being here with us today. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you were here. We'll see you next time at Next Step Press.